Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In Season 6, our Disease Films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit, some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big. Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> we talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. Hmm. 
This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're wrapping up our Hayao Miyazaki series with his 2004 film, Howl's Moving Castle. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're a regular listener of the show and you're interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thenextreel. We have lots of great conversations over on Slack, and uh, those Patreon members are able to join us and get in on the conversation. So you should, too. You should. You should really join us on Slack. Uh, and, and you could talk to the good and kindly Ben Lott of the Blot Spot fame. Oh, yes. He writes in with a rebound this week on Spirited Away. Spirited Away is probably my favorite Miyazaki film. It creates an elaborate world and gets me invested in the plight of the main character. I still struggle, though, because there doesn't seem to be any rules to the way this world works. When someone can be cut in half without any ill effects, I start to wonder what the point is to everything. Your rank 43, my rank 166. What is the point to getting cut in half? (laughs) I ask myself that every day. (laughs) (laughs) A friend of the show, Nick Langdon in Slack, uh, he posted some thoughts on uh, Spirited Away as well. Uh, You may know Nick Langdon from his famous role as winner of this week or this year's or this quarter's. What is it even? (laughs) This... (laughs) <laughs> this uh this this uh i don't know it's we, anim, we do them this biannum the semi three times a year what do you call it it's not a quarter this third try try anim <laughs> of the winner of the hunger games and uh he we will be talking about his uh his favorite film uh, coming very very soon Ooh, can we say what it is can we say what it is i don't know what do you how do you feel about that i wanted to leave that up to you man i think we should it's exciting i want to speak for you okay <laughs> go ahead you do it you do it we're going to be talking about, per Nick, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Oh, yes. Oh, it's about time. I'm very excited to get that one on the on the chart. Well, okay, so back to this other Spirited Away thing. So he wrote in, and it was I thought this, there were some really good points in here, uh, and, and I'm going to abbreviate a little bit. Uh, the themes of modernism versus tradition and the foreign influence were highlighted in interesting ways, and I'm speaking now as Pete, uh, parenthetically. It's a, this is an auspicious point, given the, the movie we're talking about tonight. Uh-huh. Uh, he says, one I picked up on where the spirits seem to use old forms of transport, vintage railways and ferries, but not only did Chihiro's father drive a modern car... You could tell it was an import straight away because the steering wheel was on the wrong side, showing that there was no consideration given to Japanese local customs. This was an interloper from another world. Yet against these weightier themes, so much of the animation was just cute and funny, particularly the return of the soot sprites from My Neighbor Totoro and the hilarious double act of the transformed creatures that accompanied Chihiro and No-Face on their journey. Even when the rest of the frame was quiet, there was always some business going on with them. Is the difference between a film like this and Alien Covenant also a factor of all animation being, by default, single camera? Whereas we know Ridley Scott likes to use multiple cameras to shoot fast, do a couple of takes, and then move on. I enjoyed the ma, the moments of silence that exist in real life but so rarely find expression in film much better than Ballistic X versus Sever. On that, we can all agree. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> well, I, I love it. I love that he, he pulled out some of the, those points that, uh, you know, we spoke of them in the context of attention to detail, but, uh, you know, that I had not noted the, that the uh, the spirits used old forms of transportation, and, and I, that's really, that's classy, not just <laughs> attentive. And it's time 
Let's do trailers. So my trailer, Pete, is uh, is the trailer for Wonder, which, uh, you know, the thing about movies like this is I watch the trailer and I'm already freaking crying. I mean, it's so frustrating. This is one of those just, you know, tug at your heartstrings, sappy movies that just, it just, it does its job way too well for me. And, uh, you know, it looks like a cute movie. It, it doesn't look like it's anything that's, uh, that's changing the world or anything, but it, 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 there's a sweetness to it and everything. Um, the real reason I picked this, though, is because Jacob Tremblay, who we loved so much in Room, is actually uh, the, the lead in this film. He plays the young boy, Augie Pullman, who has uh, had some deformities and has had to have a lot of different surgeries to kind of uh, make it so he can breathe right and he can hear properly and all this sort of stuff. But it's also left him facially deformed. And here he is going to fifth grade, going to school for the first time, um, much to the uh, hesitation of his parents, uh, played by Julia Roberts and Owen Wilson. And he's, uh, you know, has to kind of deal with the whole world of fifth graders and, you know, judging by the looks of him and everything and, and finding friends and all that sweet stuff. Um, it, it looks exactly like what you would expect out of a movie like this. But something about sappy movies like this, they work on me really well. And this one really just it just hit it out of the park for me. So so I definitely want to see this. I, I don't know if I, uh, uh, you know, it's not going to be something that I'm going to uh, probably love or anything, but it's still going to be something that will tug at my heartstrings. Uh, Stephen Chabosky uh, is directing it, and uh, he did uh, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, and uh, he also just recently wrote uh, Beauty and the Beast. So it's going to be an interesting one to see. Uh, what did you think? You know, I I'm I'm really excited about this one for a number of reasons. First of all, I I you know I I'm with you. I think there anything that can get me into that sort of emotional space quickly is uh, is a film I want to check out. I think this is a it's a timely story. It's based on a book that my kids adore. Uh, if you uh, it's maybe a little bit uh, early for your kids, but it's a terrific terrific book by R.J. Palacio. It's a terrific story, and so I, you know my kids both saw the trailer just this week and and uh, were floored that it was being made into a movie. Uh, they're about as eager for this as they are any of the big tent poles this summer. Um, so I'm I'm hoping that this is this is one that really uh, gets some legs to it. But of great note, however, the reason I am most excited about it because I'm a musical nerd. Uh, David Diggs plays the teacher in the classroom. And to be Diggs, Andy, you know, played Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson in Hamilton in the original cast. Uh, and I really like this guy. I love that he's doing more and more film work. He's in supposedly in pre-production uh, in Snowpiercer, the TV series uh, that just huh. cropped up on his IMDb page. So I don't know what that means, but I'm very excited about that, too. What a cool guy. Uh, so there you Absolutely. go. I'm excited about it. When's it hit? Some, well, something else that we should both be excited about is Steve Conrad is one of the screenwriters for it, and he wrote uh, the Secret Life of Walter Mitty, which is uh, something oh, that yeah. both uh, both hit strongly for the for us, right? Oh, so. absolutely. Indeed, indeed. Well, we'll have to wait a little bit of uh, time for this one, Pete. It doesn't open. It's going to be around Thanksgiving. It's going to be uh, November seventeenth here in uh, the U.S. and Canada, and then slowly. Uh, around the rest of the world after that brazil australia portugal singapore uk 
uh, into December, and then Germany, January 4th, 2018. I'm, I am really excited about my trailer. And I know there are going to be people out there who are uh, who are going to try to harsh the buzz. I know <laughs> that they are. For any number of reasons, they are. Are you but telling let me, me say are you it, warning me? <laughs> there are people named Andy Nelson who are going to harsh the buzz. We all know there are many Andy Nelsons in the world, some of them professionals in the industry of film. Some of them may be harshing my buzz on this film tonight, but I'm really excited about this movie because I am one of those guys who really likes the Oceans movies. I think Steven Soderbergh uh, did a great job with those films uh, in terms of his Vegas caper set. Uh, I love the way he uses camera. I love the way they're cut. I love the the uh, the just everything about him. I really enjoy those movies. And uh, he's back. He's out of retirement again, Steven Soderbergh, and this time he brings us Logan Lucky, which is essentially, you just imagine, just take it in your head, take a minute and think Ocean's Eleven, but in North Carolina at a NASCAR race, and all of the Las Vegas like crooks are replaced by um, very colorful hoods in the south and listen to this cast Catherine waterston we just saw her in alien covenant nice to see her getting back in here daniel craig uh channing tatum seth mcfarland sebastian stan riley keogh adam driver katie holmes hillary swank david denman dwight yokum jack quaid yes that jack quaid uh it, it looks like a a really fun cast doing something that is that it just looks like they had a a really fun time uh, delivering on screen. I laughed at this trailer from the moment it started. I can't wait to see it. Steven Soderbergh directs. Rebecca Blunt writes. What did you think? I think that directors, when they say that they're retiring and then they come back, they're like just doing it for fun now. <laughs> it's like I'm yeah. retired now. I can just play. This totally feels like Steven Soderbergh just having a good old time, getting great actors to do really interesting parts. Uh, I loved, uh, and this is probably my favorite moment in the whole trailer, um, and it's nonsensical, but I love it anyway because of that. It's when they introduce uh, Daniel Craig as, and introducing Daniel Craig. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> Which I was like, that is just brilliant. I mean, what a fun little way. I mean, it's totally different Daniel Craig than I've seen before. And it just, I mean, he is the one that I really want to see this for. But really, everybody involved. I mean, uh, all I could think of watching this was like, this is a weird mashup of uh, Steven Soderbergh and the Coen brothers. And this, that's yes. what it really felt like to me. And I was actually, I swear that I saw something that the Coens had actually written this, but now I guess uh, it's not uh, the case, huh? I, I, I found nothing. Rebecca Blunt, I didn't find anything that said otherwise. Um, and to be fair, I didn't look that hard. Uh, so there's a chance that you're still right out there on some horizon. I think it looks really great. I, I'm with you on on Daniel Craig. He is definitely the one I'm most excited to, to see as, as Joey Bang. With that so bleached funny. blonde hair and that oh. crazy accent with his higher pitched voice. <laughs> and Adam Driver has one arm. <laughs> yep. And apparently keeps losing it. So I, I'm excited to see this. It opens, uh, looks like uh, Canada, Norway, US, uh, August 18th this summer. 
uh, UK the next week, August 25th, uh, Sweden, August 25th, and uh, we've got uh, later uh, months, Singapore, Germany, France, and Netherlands come through uh, August, September, October, uh, December, and that is all that has been posted so far. Cool. Don't you know the proverb saying that a real professional does his perfect work no matter where he is? Andy. From master filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki, the director of the Academy Award-winning Spirited Away. That is ancient sorcery. Quite powerful, too. This summer, experience the epic tale of a young woman transformed by a mysterious curse. No, that's really me, isn't it? An enchanted moving castle. This is a magic house. And the one wizard powerful enough to set her free. This charm will guarantee your safe return. Walt Disney Studios presents a Studio Ghibli production of a Hayao Miyazaki film. Hold on. This June, journey to amazing new worlds. Find me in the future! Aboard Howl's Moving Castle. Howl's Moving Castle, Andy, 2004. Hayao Miyazaki. As we uh, teased last week, this is uh, this is a film that uh, Miyazaki directed, uh, though, and, and technically did the screenplay, though we know he's not much for screenplaying. Uh, it was based on the book. It's another person's story. Diana Wynne Jones uh, wrote the novel, and um, and he has adapted her story of Howl the Wizard and the Castle that Moves. How did it hit you? I enjoy this film. This was thinking back. This was actually the first Miyazaki film that I actually saw in theaters. Um, all the rest before had been uh, just seen on uh, DVD or Blu-ray. And this was the first time that I kind of was aware of who he was. And I act, I, I, I don't know, Buddy and I got tickets. I think we got like free tickets or something. I can't remember. And so we went and saw it. Uh, quite excited. And I, it just kind of mesmerized me. It's such an interesting world. Um, I really enjoyed it. I had a great time with it. I wouldn't say that, um, that it's one of his films that I really love. But I do enjoy what's going on within it, if that makes any sense. No, it it really does. I think the the film sort of suffers for me. I and and I'll I'll say at the start, I I'm with you. I love what's going on in the film. I love the messages, and I think as an adaptation, it's uh, uh, it it feels much more like a Miyazaki film than I would have expected, knowing that somebody else wrote the story, and uh, and so all of that I celebrate. But this is a film compared to the other films that we have watched in the series in which I'm always thinking or often thinking about what is going on off screen while I'm watching something else on screen. And that sort of distraction that that keeps me kind of wishing that we were looking at the story from another perspective or seeing something uh, around the corner in a way uh, is something that, that I find uh, detracts uh, the film for me. Um, or, or just it... it prevents me from from developing the sort of emotional connection that I, I made on Spirited Away, for example. The thing with this film is that it does create this really interesting world, uh, but I think it asks a lot of questions or poses a lot of, of, of elements that, um, that it never really fully closes. 
Um, and, you know, I'm not saying it has to close close things up in nice and tidy bow and all that sort of stuff. But it's kind of nice to feel like um, there there's enough here where I can really piece everything together. Um, and I felt like by adapting this book, it was... Um, which sounded like, I mean, I haven't read this book, but it sounds like it was a much bigger book and they actually had to cut a number of storylines and characters and condense a, a lot of stuff in order to make it work in context of this film. Uh, but also, uh, Miyazaki, uh, the, I mean, we talked about last time how he didn't show up at the Oscars. He was protesting um, because of the war with Iraq. This film, because of the the war with Iraq, he actually really sought out to make a film that um, that was kind of an anti-war film. And he was really kind of, he the, there is a war element in the story of Howl's Moving Castle, in the novel. But it's, I guess it's kind of just kind of in the background. It's something that's happening. And I think the really only thing that is, uh, is something that, that is really dealt with is the king says tells Howl, Go find the king's missing brother, Justin, because his skills are needed for this war. And that's kind of it. It's just this cursory thing that's happening in the background. It's something that he really brought to the forefront because of this, the feelings he was having with the Iraq war. And, and being such a pacifist, he really wanted to, to kind of uh, make this message film. And in, in doing so, I think it clouds kind of the, the story. And as much as I enjoy this world um, and all of the things going on in it, I don't know if I really have a sense as to what the purpose of all of it is, you know? Um, like, what is what is Howell doing? Is he just out fighting both sides of the war all the time? And it's, you know, he's trying to stop it. And and by doing so it and being that big bird, it's turning him into the bird forever, I, you know, I don't really get it. And I think I had an easier time understanding some of the logic within the worlds of some of his other films. This one, as much as I love it, I, I don't fully get um, some of these elements within there. Yeah, I'm I'm right with you. And I think Howell is a puzzling, puzzling character for me. I mean, does, does he represent uh, Miyazaki's statement on patriotism as the bird as he flies through the, the, the war zone or pacifism as the bird who never seems to really engage right i mean it's there's a lot of watching uh, and and really relatively little active engagement on behalf of the state uh, and even when he is drawn to madame suleiman uh, as the uh, as his pledge uh, demands uh, he he went and then was ready to leave. Like he didn't want to do anything once he got there. He wanted to go back to his thing. And and whenever we see him when he's not engaged as the bird, he's sullen and listless. And you know, I I made a note that he was dealing with just sort of generalized anxiety or or deep depression. Uh, you know, what is what is this statement here? I mean, does Howell is Howell a representation of sort of a, a quite literal representation of Miyazaki's? Uh, you know, deep consternation about the state of the world at the time. It certainly start to, started to feel like like how was the emotional resonance of Miyazaki wearing it right on his sleeve. So I, I it, it was a little it was a little much, and at the same time, not quite enough. Uh, to your point, you know, every time he opened that black door and walked out in the first act, I was thinking, 
what's going on behind the black door? I would much rather uh, start exploring that world right away with Howell uh, than watch uh, Elder Sophie uh, clean the castle. And I know that I am, uh, you know, that's certainly a matter of taste, but I, I found it much more um, interesting thinking about what's what was going on elsewhere in the world. So, Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's a really... Yeah, it's interesting. I love the way the door works. I love the way that it, it kind of the, the wizard uh, portal that kind of puts them in different places. And I think that's such a creative tool that is used here in the film. And the black door has such a an interesting um, uh, presence about it because you never really know what it is. And uh, it's it's just one of those things where and, and I mean, we finally see what's what's through the black door. And it's one of those mm-hmm. things where is it like, was it? Is it like the shark in Jaws? Are we better off not having seen it? You know, are they uh, trying to hide because it wasn't as exciting as it could have been? You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the answer of the black door is something that that Miyazaki came up with because he, again, he was trying to tie it into the war element, um, or if the the what's behind the black door was uh, in the novel. I don't know, but. It's just something that um, I really enjoyed. And yeah, you're right. I, I, I would have liked to see more going on behind the door. But at the same time, I'm like, ah, I kind of I kind of liked having that mystery, though. Well, it's I, I feel like it's an example of not making a, a choice that had they not shown us what's behind the door, you would have it probably stayed more true to the book from what I've read uh, it, that uh, the war element would not have been as enhanced uh, and it, it wouldn't have been quite such a a plain experience. You know, once we know the war is going on and we know it's going to be tragic and we know Howell is now clearly uh, by the, by, you know, the point that we see it, we, we start to make a connection that uh, Howell is, is dealing with some sort of a traumatic stress disorder. Right. And, and um, it's, it, it ends up being not as, I don't know, mystical and engaging as some of the lessons that we get to learn in uh, other Miyazaki movies, it's it's uh, maybe it's a touch on the nose. I, I don't know. I'm I'm having a little bit of trouble parsing this one uh, well, because I didn't have such a, a, a connection to it. Well, it's one of those things where I, I feel like um, it's it's a tricky place to be for for a filmmaker or for any artist when you're really worked up about something. And, and then all of a sudden you're kind of letting those emotions drive you in how you kind of express your art and it can, it can produce great stuff. But then at the same, at the same time, there are times where I think you might not be in the right headspace to make sure that the story element is actually, actually, um, effectively telling the story a story that uh, engages and and is logical within context of its world i feel a little bit like maybe miyazaki was um a little too engrossed in his uh commitment to tell this anti-war story and stuff it into this this movie that it um that he was too focused on that and a lot of these other elements started slipping away here's a story element that that i think kind of gets completely uh sidelined we have uh we very briefly in the beginning we meet um we meet sophie's mother who uh, you know seems like a very kind of socialite sort of woman 
And uh, that's kind of it. We have this this little moment with her before, and, and I think it's right when right after she's transformed into uh, Grandma Sophie, and she's hiding from her mother and says, oh, "I have a cold." And then she runs out, and that's the last time we see. Until later, all of a sudden, her mother is the one who kind of lures her in to uh, get uh, into the trap by by uh, Suleiman, and. Uh, it's it's just kind of a weird little moment. It's like, why, how did mom get involved in this and why? And where was the story element that helped me put all that together? Because it just kind of comes out of left field when mom all of a sudden shows up just to be this this uh, trap for her. I totally agree. I felt like that was uh, that was an undeserved twist. Uh, and and I didn't. Uh, it, it's not one of those that I didn't see coming and really, um, uh, you know, appreciated being tricked a little bit uh i i did like however the uh the the madame suleiman uh as sadistic war puppeteer uh confusing antagonist trick you know like we we start the the first big antagonist that we meet is the witch of the west and she is this do you totally mean the waste? Do- <laughs> the waste. <laughs> we're not in oz pete <laughs> that's not my fault that is oz that is oz conditioning uh, it, it is, in fact, the Witch of the Waste, and she is this giant thing. And again, we have, uh, you know, we we have visual traits in the character design around the big head. The big head is a, as a sign of just sort of mastery. Giant face in the carriage, I think, is a really cool image uh, when she's talking to uh, Sophie as she's wandering up to the to the castle, the king's castle. I mean, there's some really interesting things about her. Uh, you know, she is so heavily magicked uh, to to hold her. Poor Boys and glamour that uh, when we ultimately see as the as the tone of the film changes and the character design changes with it, uh, we get to see who she really is. And I think that is such a fantastic transformation. As the war becomes a much more central point in the narrative of the story, she becomes a, uh, a, a much less central character in the film and loses her power uh, as, as such. And I, I found that a really interesting transformation. And then I'm forced to ask myself, to what end? What did I get out of her uh, having that transformation? What did I get out of her and and apparently her entirely ulterior motive to uh, to get Howell's heart uh, at the end of the film? I I found that a confusing path, even though I liked how we got there. Uh, I I really didn't enjoy the journey. Uh yeah, and it's. It's tricky. I, I didn't mind the journey, but it was it just was something that really left me scratching my head. Uh, just completely not yeah. sure uh, exactly what was going on or why. I was like, oh, she seemed like she was past all that. And here she is still grabbing his heart. And Yeah, it, there are elements within it that I think may have worked better in the novel or may have been uh, uh, better suited if 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 Miyazaki had focused more on the novel. And again, that's assuming that the novel makes as much sense as we're making it out to. I mean, who knows? Maybe right, it's right. as confusing as this movie is. In, in terms of Miyazaki's direction, I just a, a que- one question for you, you know, is this is something that is an adaptation. We haven't looked at an adaptation of, of Miyazaki's in some time. Um, I, what, what did you make of him directing somebody else's work? Well, I mean, it's, I don't think there's anything uh, much of that. I mean, he, it was his idea to adapt it. And I I don't think it's that much different than 
than him bringing on other writers to help him with ideas. I mean, I think he just kind of latched on to the idea, fascinated by uh, this, this I, I think it was just really the image of this castle that was walking around in the hills that caught his attention. And it just seems very Miyazaki. I mean, that image seems like something that would have kind of jumped out of his head. Um, and so I don't think that it's, uh, it, it doesn't seem like it's that much of a stretch for him to do it, you know? I think that uh, it makes sense considering the world, the kind of the the interesting world that feels real, like uh, it feels like our world, but it feels like one in which wizards and witches are living. Um, I, I think it, uh, I, I don't know, I, it seems like something that he could have done. So I think it's just one of those happy circumstances where he read a book and goes, oh, this is something that I you know feel like is within the family of my uh, storytelling and chose to make it. Yeah, I agree. I, I I really liked it. I'm super curious about the process and that I, I wasn't able to find a whole lot given how we know that Miyazaki really works on storyboard, uh, doesn't really write a script uh, per se. Um, I, I would love to know more about how he goes about adapting something like this. Like what does the actual process look like? And I couldn't find anything on that. So, Well, I wonder if, I mean, my hunch in the whole concept of not really writing a script, if that really stems from the old Disney method that we talked about with the Bancroft brothers uh, when we're talking about 101 Dalmatians and how they don't didn't really write scripts back then. It was really just yeah. all boarded out. And I could see Miyazaki kind of sticking with that element of, of, of putting a film together still. Apparently this was originally supposed to be directed by uh, uh, Mamoru Hosoda, uh, but he quit in, uh, uh, I, I say protest, that's not really a fair term. I don't think it was with great angst, but he quit because Studio Ghibli rejected uh, a bunch of his concepts, and he said, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to work together on this. And so that's when Hayao Miyazaki stepped in to, to direct himself. And uh, it sort of feels like this is what he probably would should have done all along. Yeah, I think they were um, might have been a little busy producing, uh, what was the other film they were producing? I think it was The Cat Returns. And um, so that might have been why he chose to uh, have somebody else direct it. But in the end, I think it made sense for him to direct it because it really feels, like I said, feels like something of his. Let's do first shot, last shot, Andy. Oh, let's. The first shot is a uh, shot of the fog. And then we see kind of a hill shrouded in the fog. And we hear something coming. We barely see it's the castle and it's moving past. And the last shot is... The castle. And you know what? It can fly now because Transformers. <laughs> and it carries all the happy people away above the clouds and into the sky. You know, I really enjoy the this connection between these two. I don't know how uh, terribly, uh, you know, it, it feels a touch literal. We have a uh, the castle emerging from the clouds in the opening sequence, which is a gorgeous shot. I mean, I, I really love the way uh, the, the castle just sort of emerges on the hillside. And the last it... It uh, goes off into the sky to be uh, consumed by the clouds. Uh, again, <laughs> it, it is much of a fable, uh, you know, in and out of the story. It's a, a, an excellent entry and exit. Uh, does it give you much more? I don't know. I mean, it is, it, it, you know, it's something that in this world is kind of this mythical thing. People, you know, have heard of Howl's Moving Castle and they're excited if they catch a tiny glimpse of it far, far away. But it's not like anybody has really spent time with it. And Sophie just happens to end up in this situation where it becomes this big element in her life. 
And to that end, it's like in the beginning, it's this 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 thing that's hidden in mystery and and kind of this this shroud of of the unknown. And then at the end, it's like up out in the open and flying and and happy. And it does feel very much like you know times have shifted and maybe things are going to be better now. That's one thing I like about the world building in in the film is that uh, you know this is a universe in which you know the castle moving across the landscape is not an abnormal thing. Right. You know there are just there are just there be wizards here and that's a thing that we that we live with and I I like the way it's uh, sort of normalized. Casting by Ned Lott. Uh, Ned Lott. Uh, uh, I wonder if he's related to Ben. I <laughs> <laughs> the Lott Spot. That should be his casting company. Ah, <laughs> uh. uh, we've got Chaco Baisho as young Sophie in the Japanese version of the film. Young Emily Mortimer as young Sophie in the English version of the film. I really like Emily Mortimer as young Sophie. I, I think that she's just perfectly cast. She has the the sensibilities of that character. Um, and paired with Gene Simmons as Grandma Sophie when she gets older, talk about just fantastic casting for both of these two. Um, I really think that they're both stellar uh, choices here. But I also have to say, you didn't mention that uh, Chieko Baisho also plays Grandma Sophie. And what I think is so interesting is that she plays young and young Sophie and Grandma Sophie. And she was 63 at the time this movie was released. So, um, I mean, I, I watched uh, probably a good half of this in the Japanese this time. And I got to say, it's really impressive that she pulls off playing such a young person before she uh, starts playing Grandma Sophie. That's It is. It's amazing. She sounds just terrific, but I have to say I have I'm I'm partial to Gene Simmons. Now, lovely Gene Simmons. She has been in a lot of stuff. Ninety five credits, right? Ninety five credits. Passed away in two thousand ten. Gene Simmons, but she was Sarah Brown in Guys and Dolls. Andy, the movie version of Guys and Dolls with Brando and Sinatra, right? Vivian Mm. Blaine. Oh yeah. Uh, that that is I I know. It's who I am, man. I'm a musical nerd, and I grew up with that musical. And so Gene Simmons is always in a follow the fall down a- Oh, are you kidding? I'm all about Gene Simmons yes. in Guys and Dolls. I was Rusty Charlie. Till there was you, Pete. Till there was you. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. I always think of her as Verinia in Spartacus. That's, that is my go-to uh, for Gene Simmons. Um, uh, <sighs> Which yeah, is, you're right. She was that too. Yeah, that's 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 where my head goes. Yeah, but <laughs> no matter what, she's just a fantastic actress, and she is so good as Grandma Sophie. I just really love her in this role. Uh, what do you think of Christian Bale as Howell in the English version and uh, Takuya Kimura in the Japanese? I prefer Takuya Kimura. Uh, Christian Bale. I don't mind him, but there are there are actors who I love who sometimes they get into animation and I'm like, gosh, I don't know if if this is really kind of the right thing for you. And he just didn't seem to fit, really. I, I kind of struggle with him as as Howell. I mean, there, there are times where he works, but for the most part, I never quite uh, connect with him as, as Howell. I, I got used to him toward the end of the film. The beginning, I really struggled. It just the voice didn't match the character to my ear, and uh, and that was tough. 
I, uh, I I don't know if it was just that his brooding just was too reminiscent of, uh, you know, Batman. Batman. <laughs> in my head. I, I had a, I had a tough time with that, but it just didn't line up. And I, I know what you're saying. Like there are some actors whose voices just don't transcend the celluloid barrier. You know, like they just don't. They they never quite fit the character. Uh, quite the way you want it to. It never becomes a personality of the drawing, um, and and so that was that was tricky for me. Apparently, he approached Miyazaki directly after seeing Spirited Away, saying he would play any role in this film, whatever. Uh, and uh, there he was, Howl. I have to say, all I could think about when I was looking at Howl is that he was this this crazy blend of David Bowie and Doctor Strange. Like, that's totally. <laughs> That's, That's totally, totally what he seems like to me. Yes. <laughs> uh, I would love to have it's. It, I know it, it's a little late now, but I would love to have had David Bowie do the voice of Howell. That would have been a really cool choice. We've got Jenna, Jenna Malone as Letty. Uh, Letty, the sister, I guess, right? Yeah, she's the sister, and her part is very small. It was odd that they went to the lengths to cast somebody like Jenna Malone, who was kind of a name. Um, and especially an American to play a Brit for such a small part. But, you know, I guess it was in her her British phase. She was doing Pride and Prejudice about this time, too. Lauren Bacall uh, in the English version and Akihiro Miwa as Witch of the Waste. Not the West, the Waste. <laughs> I really, I mean, again, I really enjoy the character. And, and in isolation, I think the character design is, is terrific uh, right up through the, the shrinkage. <laughs> oh, shrinkage yeah no I, Lauren Bacall is just fantastic I mean both of them really do uh, incredible jobs as this character uh, and I have to say just as something kind of a side note with the character design just this this interesting uh, story element that we have dealing with uh, with age uh, we have two of our main characters are these older women and we have this this race up the stairs of these two older women as they're trying to beat each other up to the top <laughs> of the stairs. It was a really funny scene. And I really just loved what they did there. And I loved how it uh, was kind of a, a lead up to Suleiman uh, capturing or I guess not really capturing, but um, uh, pinning the Witch of the Waste down long enough where she could put her own spell on her to kind of pull away all of the stuff that was hiding her, how she actually was. So it was, it was really interesting. Right. I love that scene. Yeah, I, I really did too. I think, um, uh, and again, to Miyazaki's uh, strong female interpretation, right? I, I think he's, uh, I think all of these characters taken together make for a, a really wonderful tableau. And the fact that, that Howl is really relatively such a whelp for most of the film, like he's so he's like clearly powerful and he can turn into a bird, uh, but he, he really is a, a hot mess. And and uh, all of the women are either taking advantage of him, manipulating him, tricking him or, or or trying to heal him in some way, shape or form throughout the pretty much the entire film. Yeah. And so is Billy Crystal, uh, his character, Calcifer, the fire demon um, in the English version and then Tatsuya Gashuin in the Japanese version. Um also an interesting character connected to Howell that I found really interesting. And actually, I kind of enjoyed Billy Crystal in this role. I, I think they both do a great job. But it's it's such a, I don't know, It's I, I liked the nature of this particular character that was kind of connected intrinsically to Howell um, because of his heart. And uh, it was something that really... 
um, I found one of the stronger characters in the film just because it's just such an interesting, uh, interesting creation. Now, look at the comparison between Christian Bale and Billy Crystal as voice actors, right? Oh, yeah. Billy Crystal is is an actor that uh, and comedian that made that transition to uh, voice acting for animation seamlessly. Like, I've never had a question about his voice for an animated character. And uh, his voice is behind an iconic animated character. Uh, and here, I totally buy him as the fire demon uh, versus Christian Bale, and I, who I never quite rally behind isn't that an interesting like right on screen right here same with lauren bacall lauren bacall who is not known for animation uh, per se uh, but i i found her uh, performance as witch of the waste uh, absolutely believable absolutely absolutely josh hutcherson and ryunosuke kamiki as markle yeah, this was kind of just an interesting character. Again, this was something that I, I wish that there was more uh, to this particular character. And it made me wonder uh, what was going on with this character in the book. But it's like, why was this young character living in the castle? What was his relationship with Howell? There were a lot of questions that never were really answered uh, in context of that. And I felt like that was a, that was something that we might have had some answer to at some point. It just never happened because of the way that this adaptation Uh, was done. Yeah, apparently in the book, uh, the character was named Michael. It was older, an an older teen or an adolescent, uh, and also had a crush on Sophie at some point. Uh, So make sense of that. Uh, I thought Josh Hutcherson was fine. He was really young. What a kid, Uh, which I I thought was so funny. Yeah, this was was, uh, long before his Hunger Games days. But he was fun to see in this context. I enjoyed uh, seeing him on screen. I thought it was an interesting thing to make this little kid uh, a, a major character and a major sort of uh, facilitator of, uh, and, and I should say handler of Howl, um, you know, very much a sort of an id ego uh, kind of relationship. And uh, I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, it was. And I loved his little disguise as the old man as he would like pull it over his head and he had this big beard and everything. That was really cool. Um, again, I just wish that there was a, a better sense of the context about how he came to be there. Uh, Blythe Danner and Harukuto, Haruko Kato as Madame Suleiman of Questionable Intent. Yeah, I mean, she's a really interesting character, and I I like that. I I guess Miyazaki took several characters and brought them together to make this particular character for his film. I like her in the film. I just don't don't get a whole lot from her. I I think that she's more an antagonist um, by presence rather than somebody who um, I really feel uh, serious threats by. Other than the the one moment where... um, uh, Sophie is talking with her and Howell pops in. Isn't it interesting they put her in a wheelchair? Um, I, I, I think there's a there's an interesting symbolism there, like that she is wielding her power militarily, uh, magically, uh, you know, through violence, uh, power that ultimately is, uh, you know, making up for some sort of physical impotence. Uh, and and I, I think that is an interesting statement on Miyazaki's uh, part, uh, given how he felt about the U.S., uh, you know, relationship to Iraq and the and and pursuing the Iraq War at the time, she is the manifestation of that. Uh, uh, his his feeling about the war, right, right, yeah, yeah. She's a very interesting character, and um, it's uh, again one I would I personally would have liked to see a little more development with her, but I still think yeah. it's pretty interesting. 
This is another one that John Lasseter uh, was behind bringing uh, bringing over the English translation. But um, what else do we need to learn? Well, I, I think by this time, it's just important to realize that uh, Studio Ghibli had really um, taken a hold of the world of computer animation and uh, what you could do. And it wasn't so much about um, animating it digitally, although there were elements uh, that were done di- uh, with CG here. But a lot of it was just producing it digitally, where they actually now, um, they draw the backgrounds and everything, and but then they digitize it. And same thing with the characters. And then everything is assembled in the computer, whereas before it wasn't done that way. So they're getting more and more used to that and doing more of the digitally um, altered images and everything. Um, just to, even though I, I guess what they do, because they still love the hand-drawn feel so much, that even when they would do digitally altered images, then they would still go in afterward and manually retouch them. So, um, yeah, I mean, they really are sticking with the hand-drawn thing. They, it's, uh, it's, I mean... It's kind of what they're known for, I think. They're probably one of the few studios that really still cranks hand-drawn animated films out. Uh, Cinematography, puzzlingly again, handled by Atsushi Okui. Ah, yes. What do you do, Atsushi? Give us a call. (laughs) Tell us. And moving on to production design, uh, <laughs> Yoji Takashige and Noboru Yoshida uh, are behind the art direction of the film. Um, you know, I thought there was an interesting bit on the castle design. Uh, Suzuki designed the castle, and the model of the castle was originally designed to just fill an empty space in the Ghibli Museum. And uh, when asked, when Miyazaki asked, uh, you know, what do you think we should do for the castle? This is what was presented, and it became Howl's Moving Castle with chicken legs. And uh, I thought that was a that was a funny little bit of of uh, trivia. So funny! I noticed on that uh, park map that you uh, found um, the yes. Miyazaki Land that uh, Howl's Moving Castle was the castle in the middle of the park, much like Sleeping Beauty's castle or something like that. <laughs> yeah. It was Howl's Moving Castle in the middle. I still want that place to be real. So bad. <laughs> Uh, locations uh once again the, the you know you had made the comment that this film i think has a much more european feel and and it really does uh, although i think you know it, it we we can't say that miyazaki doesn't have a love for european locations he's certainly influenced by um european sensibilities and design and and you know world building but uh sophie city in fact was based on colmar france and Vicver france uh on on the border of germany and uh so i i i'll put a couple of links in the show notes i you certainly don't need that to to get here but i put the google maps like 3d and street view map uh, uh links in the sh- notes and I find it really fun because when I click on them, I'm in the movie. Like they are, it, it's once again, it's like the uh, like the city he based the the uh, temple city on in Spirited Away. You know, if you if you go to that location, you you're in the film, and I think that's um, he's he's has quite a grasp of translating the real space into animation. Very cool. How did you feel about the editing on this one? Takeshi Isayama uh, editing again. Uh, the pacing, I, I didn't have any problems with the pacing. It still is coming in about two hours. Um, for animated films, that's pretty long. But, you know, something about the, the, the flow of these stories, they just move at a nice pace, and I never feel like they're running too long. No, I didn't either. I didn't have any uh, sense of, of boredom. The The issues that I had were, were much more uh, sort of character motivation story um, but I had a great time just watching the film. It's beautiful enough as just a work of art that uh, I I 
trucked right along with it to the very end. Yep, absolutely. Uh, your man, Joe Hisaishi again uh, with the score, which is, again, fantastic. Yeah, he when he's working with uh, Miyazaki, I think they really come up with some beautiful, beautiful music. And the stuff he does for Howl, I mean, it's not... As uh, for me, it's not as strong as like Spirited Away or Mononoke, but there's some really strong uh, uh, themes in here. And it's it just you it's very easy to hum after you're done watching the movie and it just kind of sticks with you and and it just kind of lives with you for a little bit. I, I think that Joe really has a strong connection with the worlds that Miyazaki creates and has found a, a really nice way to tap into them. So uh, yeah, I think uh, this is uh, some strong stuff here. Totally. And again, some of the most exceptional use of piano uh, in, a, in a major theatrical score. It's The themes are just gorgeous. Uh, how did it do during award season? Uh, this one was uh, pretty popular. It got 15 wins and 20 other nominations. It did get an Oscar nomination. Uh, in, it was actually released in the U.S. in 2006. Sorry, 2005. But uh, it ended up um, getting nominated up against Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, which ended up taking the award that year. So it didn't win an Oscar. But at the Tokyo Anime Awards, it did win Animation of the Year, Best Director, Best Music, and Best Voice Actor for Chieko Baisho. Wallace and Gromit, really? Are you knocking on Wallace and Gromit? Okay, as much of, uh, as much trouble as I had with this film... I have a hard time imagining ranking Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, as higher than Howl's Moving Castle. Really? <laughs> I, I, to be fair, I've actually never seen that movie. I've seen plenty of Wallace and Gromit, but I haven't seen that <laughs> <What>? movie. <laughs> I know. That's a lot of attitude, man. I know I do. But it's Wallace and Gromit. I, I love Wallace and Gromit. I think they're great. Um, so I'll have to see that movie before I can fairly judge it. I don't know about that. How to do in the numbers? Miyazaki's adaptation of Howl's Moving Castle cost 2.4 billion yen, which was $24 million or about $30.5 million in today's dollars. After premiering at the Venice Film Festival, the movie opened in Japan on November 20th, 2004 and grossed 19.7 billion yen, which was a hundred nine. $90 million, another huge success for Miyazaki and Ghibli, and putting it in third place for most financially successful films in Japan behind Spirited Away and Titanic. So it, it was very popular over there. Domestically, Disney gave the film a limited release under their Buena Vista umbrella on June 10th, 2005, opposite The Adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl 3D, High Tension, The Honeymooners, and Mr. and Mrs. Smith. It went on to make $4.7 million here and another $45 million around the world, giving it a total gross of $296 million in today's dollars. That leaves it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of about $2.3 million. All in all, I think it's fair to say that Miyazaki has locked in a successful fan base with his films. That is fantastic. Yeah. For animated, like hand-drawn, largely hand-drawn animated films, that is just fantastic. Film after film after film is just incredible. Uh, I think it's time for us, Andy, to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel or just swipe over to the show notes in your podcast app of choice and tap on the link for Flickchart. You'll see it right there. You can you can tap on it. It'll take you over to Hell's Moving Castle. And, uh, and, and then you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up next to ours. What's first? First up, we're back to the O Brother block. Hell's Moving Castle or O Brother, where art thou? I'm O Brother on this one. 
I'm I'm also a brother on this one. Howl's Moving Castle or Christmas in July? Uh, Howl's Moving Castle. I would say Christmas in July. Would you say it real hard? It's not the coffee, it's the bunk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do like it. I do like it a lot. I I I'm I'm not set in stone on this one. I'll give you Howl. Okay, I I think we should. I you know. I hear you. I hear Miyazaki you. thanks you. Howl's Moving Castle or no? Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah, I'll say Howl. Howl's Moving Castle or whatever happened to Baby Jane? I'm going with oh, Baby Jane on this one. Baby Jane. <laughs> Howl's Moving Castle or Transamerica? I think Howl's Moving Castle for me. I would say, I feel like I'd say Transamerica mostly because of Felicity Huffman's performance. Um, but I'm okay going with Howl on this one. All right. Howl's Moving Castle or Driving Miss Daisy? Driving Miss Daisy. Driving Miss Daisy, please. Howl's Moving Castle or 500 Days of Summer? 500 Days of Summer, please. 500 Days of Summer, indeed. Howl's Moving Castle or Siriana? Siriana for me. Siriana, please. Howl's Moving Castle or some Sean Connery action in Outland? Outland, please. Yeah, I'm going to go with Outland. Yes, you will. Yes, I will. Well, there it sits. Howl's Moving Castle is 181. 181 out of 305. Not too bad for that one, I'd say. Yeah, it's not too bad. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm still at a place where if it doesn't crack 100, I feel bad for the film. But I got to let that go. You do have to let that go. Yes, you do. And here's the order, Pete, of all six films that we've talked about so far. First up is Spirited Away. Next is My Neighbor Totoro, then The Wind Rises, Howl's Moving Castle, Princess Mononoke, and last we have Lupin III, The Castle of Cagliostro. That feels about right. Princess Mononoke needs to be much, much higher. Yeah, it's probably okay, though. Much, much higher. Yeah, it's probably probably okay right where it is. It's, it's second to last. Oh. Yeah, it's probably, it's probably, they're all great films, Andy. It's probably just fine. Uh, you don't want to rock the boat now that the boat is <laughs> the ship is sailed. You don't want to do that. It's okay. That's right. Uh, what this do for your Letterboxd uh, review over Letterboxd.com? Uh, give me a star, and uh, did you like it? It's three and a half stars, um, but I do like it. This is one I feel like the story could be a little stronger, but it is very enjoyable still. This is another one where over the course of our conversation, I've been going back and forth between uh, three, three and a half, four, three and a half, three. Uh, I, I'm landing at three and a half, but I, I think it could fall uh, if, if I don't back away from the computer. <laughs> if you don't uh, stop quick. But, but you know, I did like it. I did give it a like uh, because I just enjoy uh, his style. I enjoy what it looks like. And the castle as a character itself is just fantastic. Absolutely. I agree. We are we're finished with uh, this year's Miyazaki uh, Fest. And so we've wrapped up our series for 2017. I think it's safe to say we have a few more films to talk about. Oh, absolutely. He's got a lot of great stuff. So it'd be fun to come back and revisit this yeah. another day. I think, uh, I think it would. But where do we go from here leading into the summer? Well, we're going to be kicking off a Melissa Matheson series, a screenwriter Melissa Matheson. We're going to be looking at uh, three films that she wrote. We're going to start with The Black Stallion. Then we're going to talk about E.T., The Extraterrestrial. And we're going to be ending with Kundun which should be an interesting uh, uh, trilogy of films to discuss. Totally. If you, We should say, once again, if you have not 
found Kundun, if you're following along with us, you may want to jump to your library, your local library, uh, because it's tough to find. It's not streaming. It's not available for for purchase online. I think you can get it through Netflix if you're right. If you're still no. on the DVD plan, nope, you can't. No, there's got to be something about that. Who yeah. has put the know. kibosh on this movie? I don't know. It's it's a weird one. I don't know what's I, going uh, on with it. It's crazy. I'm. I did uh, fine. I think we both found it through our local libraries, and and so if you're following along, get it into your. Um, uh, you better check it out uh, earlier. Get it on the requested early, so you can you can watch along with us. And uh, you know what people can also do, Pete, is they should also head over to letterboxd.com/slash/the-next-reel. They can check out our watch list, and they can see all the films that we're going to be talking about. Actually, we've got it fleshed out all the way through the end of the year. So they can keep staying ahead of knowing these sorts of things about what films we're going to be talking about and make sure that they can find them in time. That's a good point. That's a very good point, Andy. Go there, letterbox.com slash the next reel and uh, check that out. Uh, and while you're doing that and all the people are going to Letterboxd, I got to go to bed. All right. Well, I'm going to go through the black door just, just to see, just a peek, just a quick little peek. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Uh, really rich critique of the film in Amazon comments <laughs> tonight. Would you like to go first? Yeah, actually, mine is uh, somebody who's a fan of the book. Uh, Marsha Pop wrote, this is not the same story. A caveat for anyone who has read Diana Wynne Jones's book, from which this movie was supposedly adapted. This is not the same story. The only thing that remains of the original tale of Howl's Moving Castle are the names of the characters. Everything else has changed, including the characters themselves, the plot, and the entire storyline. So there you go. Some people are not going to be a fan of the movie if they really love the book. That is true. Although, because of Diana's uh, Diana's own comments that the book is a different thing, the book is a different animal, that she loved it, it's great, I, I side with Diana Wynne-Jones. Here, here. Mine is from uh, Cro-Mag. I, it's possible that Cro-Mag has been featured on the show before. <laughs> it's I, possible I feel like we have seen like Cro-Mag. And, yeah, and, and this uh, particular review, I think, is really incisive. Cuts right to, right to the heart of the issues we have with this film. Cro-Mag says, I bought this for a friend who was depressed and was informed it was her favorite movie, period. So I guess it fit the bill. <laughs> so it is actually... It's kind of recursively almost also a review of his friend's depression, which I think is important given the context of Howell's depression. Therefore, Cro-Mag is much more intuitive than we ever thought. So in that sense, is Cro-Mag uh, Grandma Sophie? <laughs> yes, Cro-Mag is a recursive Grandma Sophie. Do you know what? Wow. I want to do a series next year where we only, this is what we're going to do. Are you ready? I'm this ready. This is going to be so good, Andy. I am more excited about this series than just about any other series. We are going to go through and we are only going to review three movies that Cro-Mag has also reviewed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Wow. Right? The things that we stoop to. <laughs> that includes that in, that would include movies like Into the Wild. Okay? Uh-huh. Like there's something. I don't like that um, one. Um that right? And so did Cromag. Uh I, I Cromag has reviewed a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. I think Cromag is one of those like Uber reviewers. <gasps> Here's one. The Reanimator, Andy. Oh. And Beyond the Reanimator and Bride of the Reanimator. Are you kidding? <laughs> we have hit pay dirt. Oh, so funny. <laughs> the bri- the the Reanimator series care of <laughs> Cromag. Cromag's reviews. And they are those are I'm not kidding. He's he gave Reanimator 5 stars, Beyond Reanimator 3 stars in what has to be the only upset in the triple threat uh of reanimator series the bride of reanimator is a four star wow after the three star beyond reanimator jeez thanks amazon i've been podcasting since 2006 in that time i've tried countless hosting platforms but in august 2022 we switched to transistor to power all of our shows here at true story fm And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.